Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast. I'd like to take just a quick moment to express appreciation and gratitude to all of my listeners out there, wherever you are. This is actually episode 72 of a weekly podcast. That's a long time. And I know that some people have been following it faithfully, but however long or short people have been following it, I am appreciative and I am honored that people would listen to this. And I hope that it continues to be useful to you. We are in the famous phrase of Milton, which we are actually about to come upon in just a moment in the opening of book seven. We are perhaps fit audience, though few. And yet, a faithful audience and a widespread audience. I get stats and they tell me what country listeners come from. And there have been perhaps a dozen countries that have tuned in at least once to this podcast. To me, that is just thrilling. And as I say, I am deeply thankful that this has been useful, and I hope it continues. We continue to discuss Milton's Paradise Lost, and we have actually reached a significant turning point, the opening of Book 7 which is exactly halfway through the 12-book epic, and a turning point, as Milton himself points out. It opens because it's a turning point, because it's the halfway point. It opens with yet another of the invocations to the muse in Paradise Lost. Milton invokes the muse not just once, but several times at significant moments. And halfway here is a significant moment. And the invocation to the muse explicitly points that out in line 21. Half yet remains unsung. But it goes on to point out a difference between the two symmetrical halves of the epic. Milton has divided Paradise Lost structurally into two mirroring halves, but they mirror each other in an opposite way. And in doing so, he is explicitly following the model first established by Homer in the Odyssey then taken up and imitated by Virgil in the Aeneid. And that structure is one of wandering versus coming down to rest. In the first half of the Odyssey, everyone is wandering. The hero Odysseus is wandering, trying to get home, recounts his adventures in a section uh, four books that are actually called The Wanderings by scholars. And his son, Telemachus, is wandering in search of his father, or at least of news of his father. Then, exactly halfway through, in book 13, 
out of 24 books, the epic shift. Odysseus actually gets back home. The quest has been achieved by book 13, but remaining for the second half entirely upon the island of Ithaca, Odysseus still has his work cut out for him to regain his homeland from the suitors that have taken it over. The Aeneid, as I say, mimics that. In the first half, books one through six, since the Aeneid has 12 books rather than 24, in the first six books, again, it is perpetual wandering. We trace, though it's out of chronological order, we trace the wanderings of Aeneas and his fellow band of Trojans from the fall of Troy to landing on the land that the gods have designated will become their new home, where they will establish a new Troy, though it will not be called Troy, it will be called Rome. And they do that in book seven, but just as in the Odyssey, all is still not well. The remainder of the Aeneid is battle scenes between Aeneas and his people and the native peoples there, or at least a faction of them, who are bitterly opposed to their coming. Wandering and then a conflict which is stationary. Paradise Lost is clearly mimicking the same pattern. We have been wandering along with the narrative in the first six books, though again, like both the Aeneid and the Odyssey, Paradise Lost is told out of order, so we have to shuffle the chronology to get a sense of the actual chronological order of events. But we have been wandering from hell to chaos, to heaven, and then back to the Garden of Eden, where so far we are stationary. And we have to remind ourselves, and Milton, in fact, is aware that by this point, his readers might need to be reminded that we have been listening, actually, to an account by the archangel uh, Raphael. After the invocation, line 41, say, goddess, what ensued when Raphael, the affable archangel, had forewarned Adam, beginning in the midpoint of book five, Raphael begins fulfilling the task that God has sent him here to accomplish, which is to warn Adam and Eve in no uncertain terms and in great length and detail of exactly the enemy that they will be facing and tempted by and the history behind that temptation. And we are still not done with that. We are not done with it until the end of book eight. And Milton reminds us that so far and until the end of book seven, we are listening to a continuous account by that affable archangel, Raphael, recounting everything that has gone on before this 
point. We know some of that because we have read books one through six. There has been a war in heaven recounted through the entirety of book six. The rebel angels lost, were cast into hell, became the devils, and Satan has broke jail, so to speak, and come back out and landed finally in the Garden of Eden and is lurking, waiting for his chance. And Milton opens this account with this invocation again to the muse, but which is far from being merely a repeat. Each time that Milton calls upon the muse, two things are true. One, there is a personal autobiographical element to it, as there most certainly is here. And two, the changed circumstances in the poem dictate a rather different focus for this invocation. All of the invocations are deeply memorable. Taken together, they are the source of probably half of the famous quoted Bartlett's famous quotations lines from Paradise Lost. But they're also among the most moving parts of the poem. And also the most beautiful. And I would like to read to you the invocation that opens Book 7 and therefore opens the entire second half of the epic. Descend from heaven, Urania, by that name, if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine, following, above the Olympian hill I soar, above the flight of Pegasian wing. The meaning, not the name, I call. For thou, nor of the muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwellst, but heaven-born, before the hills appeared or fountain flowed, thou with eternal wisdom didst converse. Wisdom, thy sister. And with her didst play in presence of the Almighty Father, pleased with thy celestial song. Up led by thee into the heaven of heavens, I have presumed, an earthly guest, and drawn empyreal air, thy temporary, and with like safety guided down, return me to my native element, lest from this flying steed unreined, as once Bellerophon, though from a lower clime, dismounted on the Aelian field I fall, erroneous there to wander and forlorn. Half yet remains unsung, but narrower bound within the visible diurnal sphere, standing on earth, not wrapped above the pole. More safe I sing with mortal voice, unchanged to horse or mute, though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen and evil tongues in darkness 
and with dangers compassed around, and solitude, yet not alone, while thou visit'st my slumbers nightly, or when morn purples the east, still govern thou my song, Urania, and fit audience find, though few. But drive far off the barbarous dissonance of Bacchus and his revelers, the race of that wild rout that tore the Thracian bard in Rhodope, where woods and rocks had ears to rapture till the savage clamor drowned both harp and voice, nor could the muse defend her son. So fail not thou who thee employs, plores, for thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. As so often in Paradise Lost, a passage like that, you can get a whole liberal education simply by pursuing the references and allusions. I always try to be practical and shoot down the middle, trying not to be cursory at the same time, not dwelling so much that we bog down in the narrative. But there are many things here too important not to pause. We have the heavenly muse, and we have spoken from the very beginning of the epic, because Paradise Lost opens with the first of those invocations, of the complex identity of this heavenly muse. It is, and can only be, with a Christian poet, some form, some vehicular form, of God's inspiring grace sent by a kind of embodiment or emissary, and often shadowy as to the identity, but here, pinned down a little bit, here Milton spends some time trying to clarify a little what this heavenly muse actually might be, and to our surprise perhaps, in the very first line, speaks of her by name. Urania. Urania was one of the original muses and in fact was the muse of astronomy, appropriately enough for such a cosmic poem as Paradise Lost. But the poet immediately goes on to say the meaning, not the name. I call you Urania, but what's important is the meaning, not the name. For you are not really one of the muses nine and didn't really dwell on the top of old Olympus, but you were actually heavenly born. You were sent from heaven. This is not some sort of nostalgic paganism. I'm simply using the name for convenience. Well, there's still a personification, even though it has now been Christianized and the muse is heavenly born. Who is the muse in heavenly terms? And again, there is still some mystery, but 
the poet speaks of her as someone whose sister was wisdom. Thou with eternal wisdom didst converse, wisdom thy sister, and with her didst play in presence of the Almighty Father. This, again, elements of a liberal education, this time in the vision of the Bible. There is a famous personification of the figure of wisdom in the Old Testament in a couple of places, specifically the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, rather surprisingly and unpredictably, a figure like this to pop up there, and later in one of the apocryphal books called The Wisdom of Solomon, a personification of wisdom and the Wisdom of Solomon passage speaks of wisdom as a female figure who was there at the creation. So it's very appropriate that Milton should invoke this. It speaks of wisdom as a female figure. Northrop Fry says of this, it's the closest that the Christian God is ever going to get at having what all of the pagan deities had, which is a female consort. Wisdom is not that, of course. Nevertheless, personified in female terms, and as apparently a childlike, innocent figure who didst play in presence of the Almighty Father but was there at the beginning. This is again actually in the Old Testament, at least if you have a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it. She was there and witnessed the creation playing before the Lord. And Milton's own invention is that she has a sister, Urania, who was there as well. This takes us back to the first invocation in Book One, Thou from the first was present. So appropriate to this moment of the creation, because this is book seven. This is the book in which, in the chronological narrative, we have reached the next step after the war in heaven and the casting out of the devils. God then creates both the world, which in Milton's terms means the entire old Ptolemaic system, and the earth in the center of that world, his particular usage, trying to come to terms with the Copernican and Ptolemaic cosmos at the same time. That means it is utterly appropriate that the creation, which is a counterbalancing act, Satan has marred the original creation. He has introduced evil and war into the midst of heaven itself. God decides just to show that he is going to counterbalance that with a second creation, and that will be the world and the earth and Adam and Eve on the earth. That's what's happening in book seven. And it is inevitable given the number symbolism, which again, I promise to 
talk about at greater length when we have finished Paradise Lost and know the total narrative. There is a numerical system in the numbering of the books, but this one is completely obvious and logical. Book seven for the creation. Seven is the number of creation. Six days followed by a day of rest for the total of seven. And seven is actually a number with a significance in other mythologies as well. It is one of those numbers that acquires special resonance mythologically. But in the Christian tradition or the biblical tradition, very definitely it's inevitable that the world would be created in book seven. And before we start following that creation, Milton pauses a moment, addresses Urania the muse and asks for inspiration, but also, which does surprise us perhaps, it's not surprising that he asks for inspiration, taking a breather at the halfway point, help me get through the second half. What is surprising is that he asks for protection and there is a dark element to this invocation. Return me to my native element and keep me safe, he goes on to say, summarizing, because he speaks of himself and by he, I mean Milton himself, this is directly personal, more safe I sing with mortal voice unchanged to horse or mute, they have not shut me up, though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen and evil tongues, in darkness and with dangers compassed round and solitude. I guess you could call it self-pity, but I am very definitely disposed to grant someone in Milton's position the right to pity his own plight a bit. This is a man who is reminding us that he is old, blind, his cause has failed, he has narrowly escaped being executed for treason, and is still probably with potential dangers compassed round and solitude. He has a right for a moment of darkness, it seems to me. Why here? Because we are approaching the fall. Though fallen on evil days, on evil days though fallen, that echoing repetition of fallen in relation to himself, he is relating his own fall to the fall of humanity. And again, that is not, I would say, some sort of narcissism. That is Christian truth, that each human life repeats the fall over and over again. The hope with Christian faith is that it also may repeat the incarnation and the resurrection 
and the redemption all over again in moment after moment as well. But definitely the fall is not a one-time event. It echoes down through the whole of human history, including into the fall of Milton's own life. And he's alone, he says, and solitude, but not alone. I have you, heavenly muse, and I will find perhaps possibly the single most famous line of Paradise Lost, fit audience find, though few. Resonant line. And compares himself to two figures in this invocation. One is the figure of Bellerophon. This is the legend of the winged horse Pegasus, the winged horse that came to be a metaphor for poetry itself, flying beyond the normal limits. And Bellerophon was the hero who rode Pegasus, but went too far, presumed, tried to fly up to Mount Olympus itself. Jupiter, or Zeus, therefore sent a gadfly to sting the horse, and Bellerophon was thrown off and fell to the ground. He survived, but wandered blinded by that fall. So, of course, an emotionally resonant metaphor for Milton, blind and wandering. Poetic presumption. This looks forward to the theme that has already been announced and we've already touched upon, but we will soon, including much of Book 8, we will soon be consumed with it much more, and that is the theme of forbidden knowledge. Milton, with his enormous idealizing of education, writing a whole famous pamphlet on education, one of the most educated men who'd ever lived, and yet constantly harping on some knowledge is forbidden. Reason is but choosing, and is the use you make of your knowledge that counts. Bellerophon, presumptuous, guide me safely downward, because now we are done wandering upward through heaven and hell and chaos, all the cosmic realms. We are now, for the second half of the poem, almost entirely with a few quick cuts. We are now almost entirely down on the ground again. But that doesn't mean it's safe. The other reference, though again, you have to either look at your footnotes or simply know, is a reference to that wild route that tore the Thracian bard. The Thracian bard is Orpheus. Again, a metaphor, a symbol of the artist, like Bellerophon riding the poetic horse of Pegasus. And again, coming to a tragic end. Orpheus not only lost his love Eurydice, but later on, died by being literally torn apart by followers of Bacchus or Dionysus called the Menads. 
and the savage clamor drowned both harp and voice. I don't want to end up like that. There isn't a major poem by Milton that does not refer to the myth of Orpheus at some point or other. That figure absolutely haunts him, as it has haunted others. You can teach a whole course on the myth of Orpheus down through the history of myth and literature. But definitely haunts Milton. Then we return to the narrative, and we have the guest narrator, so to speak, that affable archangel Raphael, who affably goes on with the narrative, recounting the creation, and if there is a moment at which Milton might seem open to the charge of simply paraphrasing the book of Genesis in the most long-winded fashion, since here it takes him an entire epic book to describe what Genesis described in what, a page and a half? An enormous expansion, but as I ha hope to make clear, not just a paraphrase. The word recreation would be much more appropriate. And opening out, Milton would never agree that he was adding things in to the Bible, but he hopes to open out and illuminate things that are there, but have to be unfolded from the text of the Bible. And there is a lot of that and a lot of questions that Milton is addressing that are not just his questions but traditional questions about the mystery of the creation. God goes on to say after the fall of Lucifer from heaven, God goes on to say, well, I have a plan. Around line 152 in book 7, my damage fondly deemed, God says, I can repair that detriment. Satan may fondly deem what has just happened, the war in the heaven, to be damage, but if you want to call it that, I can repair it and do so by creating another world, and out of one man a race of men innumerable, there to dwell on this new world, not here, till by degrees of merit raised they open to themselves at length the way up hither, under long obedience tried, and earth be changed to heaven, heaven to earth, one kingdom, joy and union without end. This is why I always laugh when people say, well, Milton is, as one critic I was reading uh, recently, not a Milton critic, but a critic in the area of fantasy, spoke of Paradise Lost as Bible fan fiction. Well, I think tongue was in cheek there, but at any rate, it's a lot more than that, it's not even what a fundamentalist or a literalist would call faithful 
to the Bible. There are places, and this is one of them, where Milton's own vision opens out. And we have seen this before, specifically in Book 5, Milton imagining that the hierarchy that conservative theologians would be very anxious to reinforce the chain of being. God and the angels are at the top, the line of authority, and then the kings and the clerics down below them, and then the common people, and then animals, vegetables, and minerals, all a line of authority and all fixed. Milton repeatedly says, and people miss it, he didn't think that was God's original plan, and he doesn't think that in the end it will be God's plan, though God has had to institute 2.0 in order to get there because of the fall. But if Adam and Eve, the passage I just read, if Adam and Eve had not fallen, they would, by degrees of merit raised, open to themselves at length the way up hither, meaning to heaven, and earth be changed to heaven, heaven to earth, one kingdom. Heaven up there, earth down here. Eventually, that hierarchy would not be true. Eventually, one kingdom, joy and union without end. Again, that phrase, not repeated here, but that Milton repeats elsewhere, of God in the end being all in all the urge to get past the authoritarian chain of being type of ideology that has really been the standard for christianity all of those years and still is to some people but not to the revolutionary milton with his love of liberty god wants us to have liberty and equality and immediately goes into action, gives the signal, so to speak, to the Son of God. And here, another element of our education, we are forever misled in our culture by Michelangelo and his Sistine Chapel ceiling. We think of God the Father creating in the book of Genesis because we see it up there, or we see it in the five million reproductions of those panels in the ceiling. But it was actually more traditional to think that it was the son rather than the father who was the active agent of creation, and that's how Milton plays it in Paradise Lost. Why? Because the son was the word with a capital W spoken of in the opening of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. And the word created. The creation through the word rather than creation merely by shaping a bunch of stuff out there is not unique to the biblical tradition, but that is a rare metaphor in creation myths, but it is the biblical one, and the Son is the incarnate Word. So it is the second person 
though Milton was not a Trinitarian, and to say the second person of God is not exactly accurate to him because the Son is not the Father and not equal quite to the Father, but is still, as more traditionally, is the active agent of creation here. And the Son rides out into the realm of chaos in order to begin creating the world on that magnificent chariot modeled on the chariot of the divine presence in the opening of the book of Ezekiel that we saw in book six rides out far into chaos and the world unborn, line 220. Keats once said in a letter that whenever he read that line, it put him into some sort of rapturous reverie for the time being. And perhaps that is a good place to pause, and next time we will follow the active process of creation, which, as I say, is anything but a, just a windy rehash of the book of Genesis. Thank you.